Greece is using about 1.5 billion straws per year. We were having around 25,000 refugees per day walking barefoot. In order for change to happen, you need to get out of your comfort zone. It's something that money cannot buy. It's passion. Hello and welcome to The Purpose Pod. I'm your host, Richard Milan, Head of Impact at Investing for Purpose. We're a community based in Greece, connecting impact investors with purposeful companies in need of growth capital. In this podcast, we share personal and professional stories from impact leaders from across the world as we aim for a more equitable and purposeful future in which everybody has the chance to thrive. Today, we have an interview I've been looking forward to for a very long time. When we discovered a social enterprise based in Kilkis, northern Greece, making drinking straws from natural wheat stems, we were very excited. So I'm extremely happy to be here with Stefanos Kamperis, manager at Staramaki, who will tell you all about them. Stefanos, a very warm welcome. Hello, Richard. Thank you for having me and thank you for your uh, kind words. So first of all, can you tell our audience what Staramaki means and maybe just an overview of the product, what do you produce, what's the simple idea behind it? Staramaki is a portmanteau, it's a coined word, uh, derived from the Greek word for uh, drinking straw, which is kalamaki, and the Greek uh, word for wit, which is sitari. So if you combine the two, kalamaki apositari, it gives you staramaki. Staramaki is a social cooperative based in an agricultural region of North Greece. We are producing, we are one of the first companies in Europe to produce drinking straws out of natural wheat stems. The stem of a wheat plant is a hollow, cylindrical uh, form, which uh, we use as a drinking straw. 3,000 years ago, in the region of Mesopotamia, the Sumerians used to utilize the hollow stems of uh, some plants in order to be used as drinking straws. So the idea is not new, it's not even ours, it's an idea belonging to humankind, let's say. Talk us through the actual straw, you know, the, the, the properties of it once you've manufactured it. As a plant, it is hydrophobic. It will not go soggy, no matter the duration of uh, that being into a drink. It doesn't leave any taste and uh, it doesn't require any raw material like paper does in order to be produced. We do not make the, pay, the drinking straw. Earth does. Uh, it's the nature itself that gives us the, the, this beautiful shape and these beautiful characteristics. Was there a kind of eureka moment or did it evolve over time, this, this, this concept? Uh, yes, it, uh, everything sparked from a moment, let's say, from, 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 from an idea, from a eureka moment. It was um, late night uh, in uh, the kitchen in, of uh, one of uh, the members of Staramaki, it was me and him, and we were looking through the literature, and it was at that time when we saw the Sumerians uh, using the drinking straw. So I guess it was uh, that moment, and it was the circumstances and the context that made it a reality. So I bet you couldn't sleep that night? No. <laughs> <laughs> we were all thinking about how to name it and um, what would be the best way to introduce that. Uh, and yeah, I think we did well mm. so far. Let's talk a bit about what you're displacing. So, so first of all, kind of historically and sadly, still plastic straws, which are everywhere despite the fact they've been banned, and also paper straws. Well, first, I need to say that coffee culture in Greece is quite, quite strong. We are famous for our cold coffee culture. Um, Greece is um, using about 1.5 billion straws per year because of, again, of the 
30 million tourists that this country attracts. So uh, 1.5 billion straws per year um, that used to be plastic straws uh, before the ban. Unfortunately, uh, in some places, plastic straws still exist. Main alternative, which was the paper straw, uh, it is a great alternative in terms of reducing plastic, but in order for that to be successful, they had to provide the same or better experience for the user. And unfortunately, paper straws do not provide the same experience. They tend to go soggy. And just a bit about where these straws come from, mostly. How far are they traveling? Where are they manufactured? They have a bit of a footprint, right? Most of the plastic straws, they came from uh, Asia. Now, drinking straws, uh, they, are, they are Greek companies producing uh, paper straws, um, but the paper itself, it's not produced in Greece. So you have the main raw material coming again from another location. And there's the news around paper straws and PFAs. Just remind us what's happened there and what was the outcome. Uh, around 90% of the paper straws in the Belgian market were found to have a set of chemicals called forever chemicals or otherwise known as PFAS. These chemicals are usually in materials where you need to have some kind of hydrophobic property. So uh, they tend to use this uh, in, yeah, in paper drinking straws and in, in other packaging materials. Mm. So let's, we'll come back to the context and what led to that. Um, but first of all, a bit of background um, to you. Can you tell us a bit about your life, your upbringing, uh, your education? Sure. I am currently 43 years old. I was born and raised in Thessaloniki, Greece. Um, I went to study abroad when I was 18 years old. Um, I went to England. I have a degree in uh, electronic engineering and I've done a master's degree on product innovation and development in the University of Brighton. After I returned, I was in mainly involved in the construction business of Greece. I had the luck also to cooperate with some Japanese. In 2008, the economy of Greece, of Greece went into a serious trouble. I'm sure most of you know the famous Greek uh, crisis. During the crisis, the whole system collapsed. Um, and it was during that time that I really got frightened of the future. Belief in the system, that was something that uh, changed. My response to that was to find uh, ways of living and the notion of being able to create my own food and create my own energy without having to buy these things, without having to work for the basic necessities of life. In 2010, I've decided to move um, to the village of my grandfather, uh, located in an agricultural region of uh, Greece called Kilkis, uh, where I've tried to research and look for alternative ways of, uh, of living. I've looked into what it's called social economy. Uh, the village is one, of the, is one of the 12 villages in the area that were supposed to be destroyed uh, for the development of gold mines. Uh, we, the local residents, were against uh, that form of development, but it's, uh, sometimes it's very easy to say what you do not want, but it's very difficult to say what you want. And of course, we couldn't be um, away from notions like bioeconomy or secular economy. And we were actively uh, looking into ways that we could utilize either the agricultural production of the region and livestock production.
So when you were doing that research, where did you look for ideas, inspiration during that time? Being born and raised in a, in a city, I was not very familiar with the uh, village way of, uh, of living. So I was fascinated by being more involved uh, with nature. I've realized that being close to nature gives you a different understanding of what growth is, of uh, what a meaningful life may be. Um, so I've tried to reinforce that. I've tried to strengthen that feeling by being more involved uh, into agricultural operations. First, alone, uh, but later on I found people that had similar ideas, people that were also afraid of the gold mines, were people that were also didn't want that to happen in the region. Uh, there were people that um, there were uh, nature lovers um, and people that truly uh, wanted a future in Kilkis that would not destroy nature. And so you started to develop some agricultural projects. What kind of things were you, were you growing? What, what, were you, what were you up to? During the first years, we were just growing um, tomatoes and, um, and things like that. We were producing sauces uh, to be sold in, um, unofficially, let's say, through our local network. Uh, but as you can realize, these ventures, they can bond the group, they can create trust among uh, the people, but they're not strong or big enough uh, in order to create the change that we wanted to see. So, so while you were involved in these, um, experimenting with new ideas, developing this, this new agroeconomy, I guess, the refugee crisis hit around about 2014-15. So, so what, how did that affect your area? How did you respond? What was the impact of that? In Greece, there are many uh, islands, so people were, f- were coming in from many points, but there was only one exit during that time. Uh, it was the famous Idomeni Gate, which is in Kilkis. So from our region, almost 1.8 million people crossed. Uh, we were having around 25,000 people per day walking barefoot. So uh, we couldn't just stand aside looking. We had to support uh, and we were one of the first groups, voluntary groups, to, to participate in that uh, back in 2014. During the first two years, we were mostly alone as a voluntary group. Uh, after that, the crisis became bigger, so most big NGOs came to the area to support. After the border closure, in Greece, there were around 65,000 people stranded and the government decided that it was the best for them to build military camps, and two of them were in our region. Again, we were against having these kind of uh, camps in in the region. We were insisting that for people to thrive, they need to be placed in the society uh, amongst us. At that point, I was the president of Omnes organization. We had 64 people uh, employed. We've designed a project that managed to shut down one of the camps and moved uh, more than 200 families in houses in in the region. This project was um, quite a success. It was adopted further on by UNHCR uh, and it was expanded in um, all over Greece. Again, though, we we knew that this kind of support, uh, it wouldn't last. And somehow we we needed to find ways of moving away from the passive support coming from Europe into an active kind of self-support where we could create the funds, let's say, needed in order to provide this uh, social housing. So social economy was one of the tools that we thought it was uh, great to use uh, during that time. 
the migration issue is not going to go away. It's something that's going to recur over the next 10, 15, 20 years. What were the lessons learned from that? Because you were right in the heart of it. Has there been some capacity building as a result within, let's say, the Greek system, European system? How, how can that be strengthened? I agree that migration will continue. There is also climate migration coming uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. And what we feel is that if you create uh, an environment in a region where people are feeling welcomed, then the region will flourish, not only for the people that came, but also for the ones that were there. Let's go back. We understand now that the group of you together, you're forming a collective, you're doing these various initiatives. And so the moment, you know, the moment arrives that night of Eureka. So Stalamaki, the, the concept comes in. So obviously it kind of fits in with the, the need for the local employment, particularly at the end of that refugee crisis as well. We were trying to find ways that could benefit local society plus the newcomers, not uh, targeting one of the two. And this, we believe, was the way for, an, for a successful inclusion of the people, for, 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 for everybody who is involved, not just for a few. So at that moment, I also realized that um, in order for change to happen, you need to move, you need to get out of your comfort zone. Even if that means that uh, you're going to be left without salary or you know, struggle for the first period. I was the president of Omnes uh, organization. I could remain there, but that wouldn't uh, fulfill me. So you're in the room, you've had the Eureka moment, you haven't slept all night. What happened next? How did you begin to form Stalamaki? So in the first uh, few days, the, most of uh, the group was, to be honest, was skeptical. Even though our region is full of wheat. Few understood that the wheat stems could be transformed into drinking straws. So it was very important for us to be able to find some, um, to find a variety that was already grown in the area and utilize that. So we went uh, field by field uh, for days. It's very difficult to change the minds of farmers, especially in our region. So, so you decided to form a social enterprise, which in Greece is called a Kinsep. Um, how would you describe a Kinsep to our international audience? Kinsep is um, a social cooperative enterprise. It's a company where, uh, in order to be more romantic, where the means of production are owned by the people producing them. So the wealth created by uh, the factory, by the company, is distributed in an equal and fair way. And everybody has an equal weight when it comes to decisions. We are very proud that we've introduced uh, an indicator uh, in order to showcase the horizontal structure that we are having, which is called the Gini Index. So it is very important for the distribution of wealth to be equal. So uh, the salaries of everybody in the Staramaki Social Cooperative is the same, no matter the position, no matter the experience. Mm-hmm. That's quite something. So. So you've built this team. Um, How many of you are there now working? Now we're 11. 11 people. I mean, what what are the advantages? Is there a strong sense of being together? What are the rewarding aspects of it? Um, It's it's something that money cannot buy. It's passion. The the people feel, I think, this mutual feeling of ownership, which gives everybody different kind of passion but it seems to be working because um yeah because we're still here and we're keep going
so the structure with the flat management, um, everyone has the same say, say. Everyone has the same weight in decision making that you were saying. So how do you lead in that structure? How does that work? How, how what's the management style? It must be very specific, and it must be fascinating to know how to work uh, in that way. I think uh, it's leading by example. At least for me, it was important to participate in everything. Otherwise, I couldn't lead people in, in nowhere. You do not just lead. You inform people of how you're going to be getting from A to B. And that's not leading. That's uh, understanding how a group will move. And the group moves as, as a group, not following somebody. Let's talk a bit about operations. So how does the whole process work? Talk, talk us through the cycle. All of our fields are placed in Kilkis, very near to our factory. Uh, every year, around July, all of the team goes out in the fields to harvest. Harvesting was done uh, with hands. Uh, almost two years ago, we've managed to get a, a new machine to help us with the harvest. Uh, after that, the stems of the wheat plant are being transferred to the uh, factory, and then we go into a five-stage operation where we uh, trim it according to size, uh, we sterilize it and we package it in different ways. So, so presumably the farmers first harvest their crops, right? So do they, do they harvest in a specific way to not damage the stem or how does that work? Yes. So in order for the farmer to take the flower first, the flower must be cut off. After that, we go into the field and um, we get the stems that are being left after the farmer has taken a flower. In order to keep the stems undamaged, does that require a kind of specialist bit of equipment or is, that, is it standard harvesting? It does require uh, specific equipment. Uh, we are also in the process of designing new equipment. I need to say that this product, uh, Staramaki, or uh, drinking straws from wheat stems, is a product that is quite new. It may be a 3,000-year-old idea, but uh, modern manufacturing processes are, have not been developed yet fully. Uh, so every day and every year, new, new automation systems uh, are, are helping us. There's no typical season anymore. Climate change is here. We're having much more extremes of weather. I mean, you know that more than anybody. The last year was, was terrible with, with flooding and then with, with fires and so on. H how has that affected you in the last, in last year? Um, what we've noticed, especially during last year, is that the rain season uh, required for, for, for the development of plants it has moved uh, about one or two months into, the, into summer. Uh, so we have rainfall where in seasons where we shouldn't have uh, rain. And on top of that, we have extreme local effects affecting areas uh, in, in our region. So either extreme cold or extreme rain or extreme drought. So presumably that, that causes a lot of challenges for your supply chain, the orders that you've got, trying to estimate how many, how many straws you can manufacture. How do you mitigate against that? Yeah, we try to keep our main agricultural production in the region uh, in case something goes wrong there. We have active places in the neighbourhood, let's say, that we only activate if, if, if disaster strikes. And climate change is something which is uh, happening. Trying to overcome the problems occurring by that is not easy. It requires a lot of effort and a lot of investments. What gets you through? What gets you through these the diff difficult times? What keeps us going is first, first the love that we have for the product that we make and second the love that people around us show for the product that we make. 
and the way that we are making it. Uh, it's very fulfilling to understand that people support a new kind of drinking straw, even if it's a bit more expensive, uh, if it is sustainable and more environmentally friendly. It's very easy to fall in love with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, that's for sure. With regenerative farming um, getting more attention now and, and picking up some speed, tell us a little bit about the maintenance of soil health that you're able to, to sustain. In our area, unfortunately, 72% of the soil is under the effect of desertification. So there are not that much useful nutrients in, in the soil anymore. And this is because of the monoculture uh, that we were, uh, the region we're doing for, for decades. It is important to regenerate the soil, otherwise the earth will stop producing anything. And we truly understand this. We try to have forms of regenerative farming in what we do, even, even though we are a small enterprise and we do not cultivate so many fields to, for that to matter. But as an example, in our case, the waste product, the, so the straws, the straw that doesn't become drinking straws, is being crushed and is being converted into animal bedding. This animal bedding is being given to the local uh, horse riding club to be used as animal bedding, and then that is being composted and it's being refed back on our fields. Mm. So it's almost completely circular. There's very little gap. And what about the science behind the yield that you're looking at? So, so are you looking at ways of cultivating wheat stems that... That have, that have more straws per stem? or Tell us about that side of it. Most of the research uh, being conducted around wheat cultivation has to do with, um, with the flower. So people are looking into how they can get a bigger flower from the wheat plant and uh, the analysis, let's say, from, of that flower. So there is little research of, uh, on, on the stems. So now, like other companies doing the same, we are also trying to find ways that uh, will create a better uh, stem, as you said, but in a, in a way that it will not be uh, disasterful for the soil. Typically, how many straws do you get per stem? Is, are, you, are you looking to cultivate the, the varieties that have more? Is it nodes, have more nodes in the stem, the, mm -hmm. the sections? Getting a bit geeky here with the science, but it's good. Now, um, if, let's talk numbers. Now, 1,000 square meters of land it will give you around approximately around 400,000 plants. Now, normally we take one to two drinking straws from each stem. Unfortunately, not all wheat stems are suitable for drinking straws, mainly because they're quite thin uh, in, in the field. So the product to row uh, ratio is quite low at the moment. We only utilize around 8% of what we are harvesting. This is a number that will increase uh, with further research in, in the field. This idea of nature-based nature solutions, part of your mind must be taken up trying to think of other nature-based solutions that you can uh, develop. There is an example for that. The, we've introduced a packaging that is made from reed stems. Now, reed stems are similar to wheat stems, but they're quite wide and, and thick, similar to bamboo, grown in the area of, uh, of, of Kilki. So we've been, we didn't only introduce a drinking straw, but now we have also a case, again, made from nature. So yes, we're always looking into more nature-based solutions that could uh, 
answer our problems. Mm. There's a lot going on in the world at the moment. Not only a heck of a lot going on in your, your world, but, but, but generally. What, what keeps you awake at night these days, these nights? Um, everything. Um, but um, having said that, every step that we take towards the right direction, it's uh, one moment um, of of quiet, uh, of quiet sleeping at night. So um, we are still in our beginning of our trip. Uh, this is very anxious for everybody who is participating in it, but it's very exciting as well. So what keeps me awake at night is anxiety, but also excitement. And they're very closely connected, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> Um, so and and what gives you the most joy, you know, most often? I think um, is the love of the people for what we are doing. Uh, it's reinforcing uh, all of us. You know, and it, it feeds us and it gives us strength to move forward. It's not an easy process. Uh, it is a difficult uh, situation, especially in Greece. But we are optimistic and hopeful. Mm, that's lovely. Um, just a bit about, on, on that subject of, of kind of self-care, anybody who is bootstrapping a startup, it takes its toll, right? So, but also you want, you have to keep going. You know, first of all, how do you keep going? And second of all, are there lessons for others to sort of, to, to learn? I, I went through this, I had, had my own company for, for 10 years. Over that time, I realized that I had to actually take myself aside sometimes and give myself a bit of time out and allow myself that hour of kip at the weekend or you know just to kind of restore and then be more be as capable and productive as possible so it's a i think it's a skill like knowing how to be self-aware enough to take yourself aside and um and not get let it get to a point where you're struggling for energy and focus let's say so where are you in that (laughs) that process there is a great african proverb for that if you want to go Fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go with others. Mm. So if, in our case, if somebody gets tired, you, we have the team that supports. So it's not one getting tired. If one gets tired, then others will support. Mm. Fantastic. So who are your customers? Who do you, who do you sell to? And tell us a bit about your, the partnerships you're developing uh, in the industry. We first introduced uh, the product via uh, via social media, and uh, we soon realized that uh, it was that many companies were uh, liking it. Big companies also, Nestle, the producer of Nescafe, uh, which is one of the most iconic cold coffees in in Greece, came to the factory to visit us, uh, and they were quite impressed by the quality of our operations and by the product itself. So we've. Uh, started a strategic partnership with Nestle back in 2020. And together with them, we've managed to automate some parts of our production procedure, mainly the trimming part. And they also supported us in networking. And we are quite proud to have them as uh, strategic partners. And now we are uh, pursuing, let's say, further ventures with Nespresso. So some numbers. So, so in a typical year, w- w- how many straws are you hoping to produce? And where are they all ending up at the moment? Our capacity at the moment is uh, around 3 million uh, units. This is a 2024 prediction. During the last four years, we've managed to produce around 3 million straws as well. 1 million per year, roughly. 
most of them, two-thirds of them, were part of the promotion activity with Nestle, and the remaining were uh, distributed uh, to points in Greece where we are having as an active reselling point. So uh, our product can be found uh, around 10 stores around Greece, mostly on Thessaloniki, Athens and in Creta. Mm-hmm. Outside of the retail, who else is, is sort of picking up and making orders? It's the uh, what is called in Greece the Horeca market. So it's basically the market that is re- uh, revolved around the touristic uh, activity of Greece. So high-end resorts is uh, our main uh, our main client at the moment. So Salamaki in ten years' time, you know, what what would be the dream? The vision is to have um, producers all around Europe, all around the world, producing similar products with similar ethics, and displacing you know you know more carbon-intensive alternatives. Exactly. I've heard of a relationship you have with a producer in Japan. Tell us how that evolved and how are you helping each other? It's um, the beginning of this cooperation, uh, but uh, as, a, as a basis, we are both so- social uh, enterprises. In the case of Japan, it is a cooperation uh, that is made in order to support a certain agricultural uh, region that was affected, uh, let's say, by hurricanes. So um, both are producing drinking straws from wheat plants, they are using different variety of wheat that, than what we are doing, but the process is pretty much the same. And are there, have you discovered there are Greek and Japanese cultural synergies? Do they meet anywhere? I would like to say that both mentalities uh, love nature. The cooperations that we have at least have the uh, same beliefs as we are. So is the support that you are offering each other part of a sort of the beginning of a, of a, of a movement, of a collective global movement? Is that, is that the hope? The uh, support is mainly at the moment psychological, is that we are not alone in what is being done. And this is the, I think, one of the most um, comforting part uh, in what we're doing, to see others uh, trying to do the same, that we're not the only crazy ones out there. <laughs> so it's this lovely idea that not only are you operating as a collective within the organization, but also trying to form a collective globally. Like there's a, there's enough room for everybody to have a Stadamaki in, in each country, perhaps in each region, because there's so much demand for the... Exactly, and we believe that every region has the potential to grow the Stadamaki that they require. So that would... Um, reduce the carbon footprint of, uh, of, 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 the, of Europe, all of uh, the world. So, so how have you found the fundraising side of it? And how important is it for particularly social enterprises to, to have that capital available, to allow them to actually establish themselves and be self-sustaining? Uh, the, the social economy should have its own uh, support um, from the European Union, and this is usually the case, but not in Greece. Impact investing in Greece is not quite um, as big as other countries. There are some new uh, things happening, but still quite at an early uh, stage. But what we found out is that without this impact investing, it's almost impossible for a social enterprise uh, in Greece to find the investment necessary for it to grow. If you could say one thing to the government in Greece to do, what would it be? Uh, a fund for social economy would be, I think, the first uh, thing that should happen. Uh, there are other examples that, that we can learn from, from uh, Europe. 
public procurements uh, tailor-made for, for social enterprises in order to support them. It's uh, one thing. Uh, tax, uh, taxation should be changed, should be different from a normal enterprise. And some bits and pieces of the law that are limiting to, to, to the growth of a social enterprise. What's your advice to other entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs out there, Stephanus? Um, my advice is to find the right people uh, to, to, to go forward. It's very difficult for one to be alone. Social uh, economy, it's uh, a cooperative uh, economy. So choose the right people, pick something that you love doing and something that you find rewarding, not only financially. Uh, I think the Japanese have a word for it. It's called ikigai. It's, um, yeah, it's finding fulfillment in, uh, in what you do. So that's my advice to any entrepreneur uh, at, at the moment, is uh, to believe that you are capable of creating the change th- that you want to see. Thank you, Stefanos. That's a great place to stop, I think. Uh, it's been wonderful to hear your, your story and your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone for listening. For more about Stefanos and Stadamaki, please see the show notes below or go to stadamaki.gr. It's S-T-A-R-A-M-A-K-I dot G-R. If you're enjoying the Purpose Pod, please like, subscribe and share. If you have any comments or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear covered, please email me, richard at investing-for-purpose.com. And we'll look forward to welcoming you again next time. Meanwhile, as ever, we'll leave you with a final word from our guest. If you want to create change, think more of the direction that you're going in rather than how fast you're traveling. Mm-hmm.